Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here in person again with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. Hello, guys. And today we are joined by the legendary Paul Morley. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. It's a great pleasure to have you here, Paul. We're going to be talking... It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. said sincerely. <laughs> yeah. No, that's yeah. mank for you, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's heartfelt. That's Gushing, really sincere. I'm <laughs> <laughs> <And> weeping. <laughs> We're going to talk about and sort of around and inspired by this fantastic new book you are about to publish called From Manchester with Love, The Life and Opinions of Tony Wilson, which is so much more than a biography of the late Tony Wilson of factory fame. It is a sprawling love letter to your your city of Manchester, where you obviously came from and you've written widely about. So we're going to talk about... You know, Factory, we're going to talk about Joy Division, we're going to talk about the two or three pieces that are relevant to this um, on the homepage this week. But let's start by just, you know, what what got you into music? What was your gateway into popular music, Paul? I think television and radio, in a funny sort of way. You know, I mean, it really accelerated for me about 1970 when I was 13. And suddenly I remember seeing T-Rex on... Top of the Pops doing Rider White Swan. That was your gateway. Well, it was Get It, it On with, in my case. Yeah, yeah, but Rider White Swan was <laughs> eerily spectacular. Because I suppose also at 13, I'd missed hippies and I'd missed underground clubs and I'd missed the Twisted Will. I'd missed Manchester music scenes. So, you know, at a certain age, you come across music and you get it in a full blood. And what you're getting is a kind of almost a compacted history of the music of the last 10 years. You don't know that. Yeah. So I didn't know Mark had been a mod, he'd been around, he'd been a hippie, he'd done all these things. Just suddenly you're seeing two... It was only about two minutes and it was just him and Mickey Finn sat on a stool. And it, you couldn't understand a word they said. And their hair was down to their ankles and my dad was upset. And, you know, <laughs> My mum was upset. Yeah, yes. but it was, it was so glamorous and it was so sexy. Yes, totally. And it's contagious, isn't it? I mean, you talk about Get It On, but I still now can feel dropping the needle onto that opening base of Get It On, which, again, you don't know how it's happened or how it's arrived at that. You don't know anything about Tony Visconti. You don't know he's pushing the bass up loud because he's, he's, he thinks he's the lead musician. <laughs> you just feel something that is sound more yeah. than anything. So, I th- yeah. I think, yeah, radio, television, and therefore sound. Yeah. Sound of records. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I totally concur, and I still think the T-Rex sound that Visconti kind of fashion was one of the great and, rock and, sounds. And when people were being very snobby about them, which they were at the time, because yeah. Teeny Bop, it was dangerous to be a T-Rex fan at my school, because it was all ELP, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, right. and I was T-Rex and David Bowie. But the sound <laughs> was actually more radical, heavier, deeper, more beautiful than that sound. Mm. And you, you couldn't have articulated it, although I guess I started to write because I wanted to, but you kind of knew it instinctively. It was a better sound. So what made you want to write? And were there particular music journalists that you discovered in sort of the early to mid-70s? Yes, I mean, music papers were another important element coming into Stockport, arriving every, you know, Wednesday, Thursday. 
initially NME mostly, but then it sound, sound started around that period. I always remember it because it gave away a free poster in the first two or three yep. issues, which is again, you know, got, got you. <laughs> but, but you know, indirectly, what was great about all sorts of rock journalists, whether they were, were British or American, is that it was also very connected to new journalism. It was connected to certain sorts of literary writing. It was literary in itself. I wanted to be a writer. I'd been very condescended to from all areas of life about that prospect as if there was no chance and you know I'd get a job but it wouldn't be the job I wanted and I'd stay in Stockport forever but I just wanted to write and and by by looking at some of these writers and how they wrote it wasn't formal I I didn't have to train to do it in fact they were training me I realized I could do it and I started literally just scribbling notes in 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 my bedroom about music I liked making little bits and pieces and and being influenced by a lot of the, 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 the more way out writers, because I, I stumbled across a couple of books that I can almost not even remember now, but people like Richard Meltzer were featured in them and the way that he structured a piece. And, and it was connected very much to Tom Wolfe's New Journalism compilation, which was connected very much to a lot of science fiction with, you know, J.G. Ballard. So, you, you know, 12, 13, 14, you're making these extraordinary leaps very yeah. quickly. And yeah. without knowing it, you're, you're learning a style. Now, people obviously, you know, for the last 50 60, 50 years have condemned me for this style. But it's a style I, I found for myself because of reading these great experimental writers with form and, and transmitting and communicating their enthusiasm. And it connected with some of the writers you would be reading in the music papers over here, like Angus McKinnon, Idris Walters, Ian MacDonald. You know, they, they, they wrote in a, in a wonderful way. It wasn't yes. just about being a, a critic. Mm. It was about writing and how you did that and how you wrote about music. And obviously loads of great music was coming into Manchester because of the Free Trade Hall. We had lots of great venues. And it all combined, really, that suddenly I could write and the enemy was so attractive and addictive because it was transmitting underground versions of the world in a in a mainstream way. So you get it in the news agent, local yes. news agent. It was ridiculous what you were actually getting. And I don't think IPC really knew what they were <laughs> what they were giving out. No. And it was setting people on fire. And and you know, even in that early Manchester, you know, when when the first Sex Pistols show, nineteen seventy six, and you, you went along and there were about forty other people. And you just knew what you were coming across more than anything else were the other readers of the music papers because they were, you know, and listening to Peel, but definitely reading the music papers and piecing together a really interesting history of music and finding interesting things very quickly because of it yes yes and that culminated in what i'm holding my hand now dear listeners you can't see it but it is (laughs) the one it's a sort of what almost like a facsimile or yes i've never uh, seen it before it's like someone has someone's hand drawn it yeah out there (laughs) the the issue one the only issue (laughs) um of the fanzine that you put together in your bedroom Mm. in manchester in what the summer of seventy six? Yeah, or- started started probably late seventy five in a funny sort of way because it took me a bit of time to get it going. So right. th- therefore, I started it before Punk, and then Punk arrived just as I was about to put it out. So there's all sorts of last minute additions which <laughs> yes. I quite like. And the fact that I put Bob Dylan on the cover is interesting. Well, I know that is interesting. The blood on the tracks it? moment. And you Ted see. Nugent. Ted Nugent. Appears in this. Well, that, what that was because there was a friend of mine. I think it was called Tony Turner. I used to work in a bookshop, and all these wonderful mavericks and waifs and strays used to come in with their own taste. And I used to go into Manchester 
Manchester Saturday morning, buy a load of bootlegs, bring them back to Stockport and sell them for 50p more than I paid for. And I'd get rid of yeah. about 20 on the Saturdays. So Entrepreneurship. Could, yeah, go. absolutely. Like, <laughs> uh, crazy. And I could, I could afford my own records, you know. Business podcast now. <laughs> that's exactly it. it. Was That's what we had. Our, our podcast was people coming in the shop and one of the, you know, and, and I wanted to get people other than me writing for it. And Tony was a huge Ted Turner fan. Pre Ted Nugent. Trumpy, Ted, Ted Nugent. Ted sorry. Turner as well. Ted, Ted Turner. Yeah, the next issue it, would it, have featured. Yeah, that that would have been the 90s fanzine. But what was interesting, it was just like then that enthusiasm for things. And it was pre-Trumpian Nugent, if you like. You know, it was pre... Right, when eventually, of course, I had a legendary encounter with Ted Nugent. But it was just that that sense. It was almost Ted Nugent coming out of nuggets more than the Ted Nugent we think of now, if you know what I mean. And Tony Turner, that's why I keep mixing it up. He he was definitely into that nuggets punk, which again was another big input into the world at the time. Len Kay's sort of, you know distribution of these amazing you know obscure records you know? indeed and i love the, the the whatever you call that the sort of tagline or descriptive oh, yeah, prose for dancing to i love that i know because in a way you know that's that's what you did you wrote it's, prose it's, it for be, it's become a manifesto funnily enough without right. me knowing why i was mm-hmm. doing you know you know how sometimes instinct is a sort of hint of the future i just had an instinct that's what i was doing and yeah. I, I knew even then that people were a little upset with what i did yeah as it's grown exponentially into the land of Amazon, they 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 loathed it, you know, viscerally that what I was doing. But but I loved it, and it came out of the things I loved. Mm. So I wanted to put it on there as almost a badge of honour, as a, a, a sort of claim, you know. Mm. And I will not be moved. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like that, like that quote: writing about music is like dancing about yeah, architecture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Zappa quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mark, you pointed out this morning that actually the earliest piece by Paul we have from enemies. Is seventy six October seventy six? Yeah. That's right. Buzzcocks. First piece I ever wrote, Buzzcocks. I wrote it down to my interview with Nick Logan, going backwards on the intercity train, uh-huh. feeling sick. But he wanted something. He said oh, to me, fantastic. "Can you bring a piece?" And I hadn't got any pieces. Yeah, yeah. So I just seen Buzzcocks, supported by Generation X, along Deansgate, and I wrote it backwards, handwritten. And I wrote many of my early pieces handwritten until I think it was Phil McNeil sort of ordered me almost to get a typewriter. <laughs> and I got a typewriter. Only one Nick Kent is allowed in this. Yeah, oh, Nick yes, that's very true. Of course, I didn't know that. So obviously for them, it was hell on earth. The idea, oh, no, someone else yeah. is handwriting. Oh, no, another yeah. one. And I wrote it as neat as I could. Unlike <laughs> <laughs> Nick. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And I remember handing it to Nick just as an example of my work. And I had no idea, but it turned... I went to the newsagent the next week to buy my enemy, and it was bloody well in. Fantastic. Under, under wow. Tony Victor Parsons on Dr. Phil good uh, and I've always sort of claimed well I had the better taste then because you know? yeah, yeah. he was just slightly behind the beat with the feel goods but I was just ahead of the beat with Buscott I mean it is an exciting moment isn't it oh. you see a, you, you know, were you, free, this... you were at the Sex Pistols free trade hall yes unless for both of them yes. right yes Tony funnily enough wasn't at the first one although he claimed almost <laughs> to the point of blackmailing yes, like people 10, that he was like 10,000 other people well yeah. exactly yeah. I mean, you know. yes, yes, I, that's I, right. mean I was there obviously <laughs> <laughs> so, so no, Mark actually, was there Jasper wasn't there but only because he wasn't but he wanted to be there yeah. there were a few people there that weren't born funnily enough yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean what was your you know once you got your foot in the door there? I mean, what was your sense of enemy at that time? The culture of enemy difficult, you know, yeah. because there was a period not long after I started, probably a few months after I started, because initially I was just doing live reviews, handwritten, posting them in the post box. So handwritten for a while, for a while, <laughs> yes. posting them in the post box, which is where we were at the time. So I would yeah. post them, you know. <laughs> There was one or two editors there weren't so sure about me. I, uh, Phil McNeil wasn't so sure. And there was a time, actually, when I did not get any work for quite a while, and I was I was a bit nervous, you know, but it, Angus McKinnon got me writing again. I'll, I'll, I'll always be grateful because yeah. 
you know, up, stuck up in Manchester, you just think, oh, is that it? You know, because, sure. you know, back then, even then, provincial music was still looked upon maybe just as a passing phase and using for a bit and then it's gone. But then Angus used me again and, and, it, and it warmed up and very quickly I started to get features, which was the big breakthrough. And Tony Stewart used to give me a lot of features and that, that, that secured it. Because it's, it's hard, people just think it's secure, but of course it isn't and uh, it's, it's always very wobbly. You and know? you were living in Manchester. When yes. did you... Did you ever move down to London on a permanent basis? Yes, because yeah, yeah. because what happens, what started happening was there's this rumor of a of a staff job, right? And and that was just extraordinary, a staff job. Sure. You know? and, and I got told that if when David Bowie and Iggy Pop, when Iggy Pop came up with David Bowie on keyboards, Chalky Davis and I can't remember who the writer would have been told me if I got the interview with David Bowie, I'd mm-hmm. get the staff job. So I was trying all sorts of ways to get into the theatre in Manchester to get hold of David Bowie. It was, you know, because <laughs> I really took it seriously um, that, that I'd get the staff job, you know. But in the end, I moved down to London because I was promised a lot of work. Right. I never officially got the staff job. They put me in the staff box right. to give it a bit of, you know, sure. hoof. But what, I, I but never what, got the what, staff job. I got a 20 would, quid a week retainer. Yeah, what, what year would that have been? Well, I actually moved down in 1979-80. Right. To Tony Wilson's eternal disgust. <laughs> yes. Tony actually tried to stop me. He got me. He tried to get me a job at Granada Television to keep me up north. Yeah, yeah. Not least because of his his belief in the north was very much that he didn't want people to leave. Yeah, yeah. And I was leaving, but also he wanted me to write about his factory acts. You know. Yes. And he lost me slightly, uh, thinking I would go. And I never thought that I was leaving to go to London. For me, I was leaving to go to the NME. Right. It wasn't a place. Yeah, it yeah. Was, it was what I wanted. And I always said to him, you know, you went to Cambridge, you had ITN, you had Granada, you had well, Factory. Absolutely. This was all of that for me in yeah, one yeah. place. And it didn't necessarily mean I would stop writing about Factory Acts, although I did because I was I was banned from doing it by the NME because they thought I must be on staff at Factory. And that's legendary because Tony then hated me even more. Not only had I left, but instead of writing about Crispy Ambulance, I was writing about Dollar. <laughs> yes, and he absolutely. I remember that yes, transition. Yes, <laughs> and, I, and I wrote, I wrote about a dollar as if it was crispy ambulance. Yes, which exactly. confused everybody, not least dollar and crispy ambulance. If you know. it was dollar, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Tony thought I'd done it on purpose. As, you know, you know, you could have a legendary sulks for years, and he thought I'd betrayed him and Manchester, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I tried to explain they won't let me write any more about Factory because you know. Yes, too close to. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. quote from this description of the unique character that is Anthony H. Wilson, and this this is a typically Morley-esque kind of list of of, of of attributes that I absolutely loved: an unstable, mildly radical, wing and a prayer mix of Cambridge incubated smartness, outside underground press irreverence, forensic new journalism attitude, haywire broadcasting brains, situationist stained slapstick confidential northern sass and weekly music paper energy combining oblique talent spotting spoof and analysis i thought that was a a pretty (laughs) nice summary of this guy that you would have first become aware of what i mean when when can you remember first seeing him like hanging around at a gig or just i would have been on tv first well tv first so that when we did see him at gigs it was most uncomfortable it was like going to see (laughs) animal collective and richard madeley's there (laughs) who was a friend of his, right? was, Yes, they were a friend together. of Tony. Oh, yes. Tony is yeah. a huge influence on Richard Madeley. And Judy, Rich and Judy. Richard and yeah. Judy, and for a while... They're both they, quoted they were the, the three. book, it's extraordinary. I think a double take, surely yeah. not. No, yeah. they were a three, Richard yeah. and Judy and Tony. They did it as a three-piece. They were a trio, and then they became a double act. You know? that's, that's too funny. But, yes, and what was interesting is he would always turn up at gigs in the early 70s and kind of be booed. 
because he was the man off the telly and he was slightly older than the, the, I say 26, the rest of us. Right? Yeah, he was five, 26. Yes, but back then that was huge, wasn't it? Sure, of course. Because by 30, everything was all over, you thought. Yeah. So the 26 was huge and he had that long hair that always looked a bit suspicious. But also, it was just, there was something about his manner even then, the way he swanned into a show. I remember full enough seeing him at Rory Gallagher and one of my favourite gags in the book is actually his favourite Gallagher is Rory Gallagher. Yeah, yeah, yeah mine too. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> well, a lot of us. Uh, and, and, then, and then when I did Out There, I think what was interesting about Tony is he, he sort of put together crews, if you like, teams of people. It was not unlike the fact what he did when he worked in TV. If he worked in TV, he'd have a cameraman, mm-hmm. he'd have a sound man, he'd have a researcher. And he kind of did that a lot. We were all... Some of us who were writers became part in it unofficially of his writing team. Hannett obviously became the sound man. Mm-hmm. Savile's graphics, you know. Right, yeah. Alan Erasmus is, is executive producer or whatever, you know, without portfolio. And Tony was very good at putting people around him and using what they showed and, and gave sure. him and recommended sure. to him and making yeah, yeah. it his own. As a, as a broadcaster, and he did this well with Manchester and Hacienda, he could take a lot of information, hearing, you know, acid rave, what's that? You know, and he could give it a headline. Yeah, yeah. And he could become the person who publicised it and yeah. become, therefore, the, the representative, sure. if you like. I, th- I vividly remember Cert Goes when Cert Goes, yeah. because I saw the pistols on it, I saw Joy mm. Division mm. on it and a lot of other stuff. And it was curious, because this man who looked like a regional weatherman... That's right. ...presenting really interesting music, but he was, like, dressed like sort of middle management sort That's of right. thing. It was, it, was, it was very... He was very memorable. I remember being slightly riveted by this guy. Who is yes. this man? Yes. We've never heard of he had, down here. He had yeah. other, uh, yes, that's right. Once he got distributed beyond Granada, where we were used to him, yeah, yeah. introducing Elvis Costello, Devo at 6.15. Yeah. Yes. The rest of the world were quite stunned. Yeah. And, and the, yes. the first response to So It Goes, I'm, memorably, the, the, Charles Charles Murray's, was, was a kind of hatred, a kind of condescension, a kind of viciousness <laughs> that really did stun Tony and sent him off into the dark for but quite a while because really? he was so hurt. Because in a way, what he was trying to do, uh, and we had to forgive his jacket and his hair because who knew what we were looking like <laughs> then, was, was really radical and really interesting. And it was above just being a music show. It involved all sorts of things right. in that show, you know, that was very difficult and dangerous to pull off. Yeah. So the idea that not only was he being battered by the ITV companies who weren't showing it, but the people he thought would be on his side were battering him <laughs> as well, you know. Yes, uh, exactly. I mean, I remember it so vividly. Mm. It was such. It was so different from any other yes, music yes, or cultural absolutely. show that I, I'd seen. No, it was Clive James was on there, you know. Yeah, there was yes. all sorts of strange sort of other world, what we would now unfortunately know as world music was yeah. in there. It's all sorts of experimental music. It, yeah. it, it, it was, you know, as they say these days, a broad church. But because of that, then he was interested in getting things on first as a journalist. You know, Granada had had the Beatles on TV first. Mm-hmm. He wanted the Sex Pistols on TV first as a sort of continuation yeah, of yeah. what he loved about Granada, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you make the point that... You know, he could have settled for becoming, I don't know how you put it, but like a slightly more radical Michael Parkinson mm. or something. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so for him to dip a toe into the mm. world of like, you know, putting on gigs mm. and then factory communications and then, and then the label, I mean, it was, it was bold. You know, even if it was in some ways a little dilettante Yeah, you know. it, was, it, was, it was all of that. And, then of course, for many people, it did look a bit dilettante And, of mm. course, it was inherited money. I mean, Bill Drummond in Liverpool was always angry with Tony because Tony kept saying, do it yourself, do it yourself, do it yourself. He said, it's all right for you. You've had yes. inherited money and you've got a full-time job, you know. Yes. Yeah. And you went to Cambridge. And, yeah. and, and, the, and the Granada factory thing was interesting because it was fundamental to what made Tony so unique. 
But there was always big battles within it because the Granada people didn't want him to do factory. The factory people couldn't believe he kept doing Granada. He wouldn't sacrifice one for the other. He was very nervous. Right about, to the end. Right to the much. end. He right would never, the end, would which never I'd forgot. No. Yeah. Is that sort of insecurity, thinking that if he gave one thing yes. up, he could lose a lot? Yes. And, he, and he, he wasn't quite sure. And, and to an extent, factory started as a kind of one-off. You know, right. the factory sample could have been it in the same way that Spiral Scratch by Buscox could it was have also been a, a one-off. A, yes. A, not the, the, the Hacienda, but the, the original factory club. Yes. Which was a, basically in a sort of fully run-down part of time. Yes, it? A, yeah. a sort of busman's, busman drivers club, you yeah. know, one story building. A lot of it done because of Erasmus is, is, right, is yeah. quiet, elusive, non-specific partner. I mean, he fell into the music business to help Alan, in a way, because right. Alan had a bunch of musicians right. that they eventually named Duarte Cullum that he didn't know what to do with, and they put the club on to put Duarte Cullum, oh, Cullum on. And then, you know, cut a long story short, we all came across Joy Division when Joy Division was so bloody furious about being kept waiting till two o'clock in the morning at some audition show. They were extraordinary, <laughs> having previously been, oh, interesting. And yeah, then yeah, suddenly yeah. they were fierce. And, yeah. and Tony was there that night. Rob Gretton was there that night. I was there that night. And, and, and that was a spark that started 78. Sure. And Tony meets Gretton. Gretton becomes part of it. Weird communities, weird yeah, scenes yeah. forming very quickly as they did in these yeah. cities. I mean, it's yeah. sort of help, I mean, Manchester's a big city, but I mean, compared to London, it's kind of a small it's town. It's tiny. That sort of the proximity, mm. the same thing that happened later with Bristol and places like yes, that, yes. you know, that, that, that people are just close enough to yes. keep rubbing up, bumping into each other That's at right. different places. And and, and, and uh, what emerges is there's a producer, Martin Hannett, who yes. when he did Spiral Scratch, kind of didn't know what he was doing because it was early days for him mm-hmm. to do it. And, and, you know, Pete Shelley's dad, who paid for that, was sat at the back of the studio yes. going to John Marr. I, 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 I love think he knows that. what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Peter Savile's there and Malcolm Garrett are there, these yeah. graphic designers. Absolutely. So people are there, writers, photographers, yeah. we're all there at this moment because of all sorts of cultural, yeah. you know, historical circumstances. But it is that, fantastic because the standard is so mm. high right across all these disciplines. Yeah. You, you know, it's it's not like, yeah, the music was great, but the graphics weren't so good or right. whatever. I mm. mean, the graphics are fantastic. Well, they, they, um, they were the thing that immediately lifted into international status because sure. I remember it was a big moment for me when I got the sleeve for Unknown Pleasures because suddenly I thought there's a, there's a local band that I know and I could literally put that between the Velvet Underground and Roxy Music, and it belongs, yeah. even if only visually. Yeah. And the fact that we made the claim that it also belonged musically, which was looked upon a bit askance, <laughs> was also true. You know, Whether you will that yeah, into yeah. myth or what, it, it kind of was. You know? yeah, yeah, it's exactly. quite funny. I, I think it's is it Stephen, yeah, Stephen Morris in the audio interview, you're going to listen to a bit later. Uh, he talks about the problem with Peter Savile's album covers. They took so long to be delivered. <laughs> you know, he just... He, he would just prevaricate and prevaricate, so every release would be delayed because you're still working on the cover. And Tony <laughs> indulged that. Well, that, that's right. That's degree, why they didn't yes. put any catalogue numbers or titles right. or whatever, or maybe a catalogue number, but not a title or a name of a group because they didn't know what was going to go in the sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the great thing about Savile, of course, was that he didn't really listen to the music. But the great example of that for me is Blue Monday. It's a great sleeve, and you think, oh, wow, he got the music right. He hadn't really heard the music, but what he'd come across in the studio was a, a, an early piece of digital storage that really intrigued him, like a floppy yeah. disc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he made the, the sleeve dedicated to the floppy disc, not, not the music. <laughs> music was not, neither here nor there. And then that great great moment when he, it almost became Peter Savile's new order, as in <laughs> Andy Warhol's Velvet Underground, which almost, you know, would have been so fantastic. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> I want to mention the two of the pieces that were featuring by you. One is, because you alluded to the transformation of Joy Division, and it's that great, review of the band on the wall where you're you're realizing they've 
they've changed into something really yes. powerful and uh, multi-dimensional. It's a, it's a fantastic piece. But later than that is is this great piece, New Stirrings on the Northwest Frontier, which is published in January '79, just before the factory sample comes yes, out. Right? right. So you talk to you identify three acts to yes. focus on. These these are these are the stirrings. Yes. Two of which of course no one ever talks about anymore. Yes. Uh, spherical object, yes. who day yes. uh, <laughs> and the passage who I did see well, play in London. I mean people do still talk yeah, a bit they about were pretty extraordinary actually but um, But the third was Joy Division. It, yes. And you know and, and I think it's not entirely clear in terms mm. of the editing. I think it, it is Curtis talking. I mean, all the quotes are from Ian, I think, aren't they? Yeah, it, it, just about Ian speaking. Because, you know, I got the four of them. Rob, never, Rob Gretton, their manager, never wanted them to do interviews because he reckoned they had nothing to say. Yeah. And he was right. <laughs> so people like us filled in for him. Because yeah. the great thing about being a rock journalist, you make myths. And here was this myth I had because there was an empty space where there should have been yeah. the talk, you know, especially after Ian died. Ian, Ian had a go. Are talking, but they 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 didn't really have anything to say to to the extent that when we were discussing what should go on the cover, Steve of Spherical Objects was a bit like a Brian Eno, and he talked wonderfully. Yes, he's very loquacious. And I remember piece, saying, unfortunately, in front of Kevin Cummins, so he's never let me forget it. <laughs> Maybe we should put Steve on the cover instead of Ian. You know, uh, <laughs> which was neglects to mention the rest of the conversation where we would fight tooth and nail to put Ian on the cover, and all of Ian because Ian only went on as a part of the cover. And Kevin even then was taking pictures of Ian Curtis, as he always said, leaving that space in the top left-hand corner for NME, which down at the NME would have been thought of as madness that mm-hmm. we were imagining it, you know, Ian Curtis would go on the cover. And, and Kevin, in a way that I was imagining future where Joy Division were what they are now, Kevin also is imagining forward. So that first piece with his pictures in the snow on yeah. Hume when Manchester was shut down that day, extraordinary. But they were very little known. Of course. And they were just wearing the clothes maybe their father gave them or their grandfather or charity clothes, yeah. you know, which luckily it suited because they looked a bit like craft work. Well, you know. It was a perfect new yeah. kind of fashion but, in but, a way, but wasn't it? Nothing. And, and yeah. the, so there was still a, st- a set. I remember the big fight between Ian Curtis and Joe Jackson to go on the cover of The Enemy very early, and I think Joe Jackson won that one. So it was still <laughs> difficult to explain, you know. In the left-hand corner, yeah, 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 Joe Jackson. We know, we, we know what those Enemy meetings were like, those yes, fights we'd have, you know, yes. typewriters out the yeah. window. I remember and, one involving... Is it Paul Young on the cover or Tom Waits? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's it. Who's going to endure the longer, that's do we brilliant. think? <laughs> you know. There's this quote, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite uncanny to read this quote from Ian to you. And we'd like to stay on the outside. We'd love it if Tony Wilson said he'd pay us to do an album on yeah. Factory. So quaint. Yeah. Uh, that would be great. We can't afford to do it ourselves, which we'd want. But you either stay outside the system or you go in totally and try mm. and change it. Mm. Well, so in a way, that's, that prompts me to ask about the, the whole nature of Factory and, you know, don't go down to London, don't sign to a major, we can do this here. It got embedded in Tony's historical sense of everything, not just music, and his historical sense of the, of the North and of Manchester and of Salford and that, what he called the, the project, even before other people right. did. And at the time, we used to think he was odd for this because he would build up Manchester, he would talk about Manchester, he would make Manchester seem important. And of course, he was, he was relating it back to the 19th century, Industrial Revolution, a city yes. where firsts happened, innovation, and it was in decay and it was in decline, and not a lot was happening in the mid-70s. And he actually imagined that he could regenerate the city in, mm. in an extraordinary way, a way that initially seemed laughable. 
but that, but but it was part of what he what it what, what he was kind of doing, and it, and it affected his decisions that he made with Gretton and Erasmus, especially about factory. Yeah. Uh, basically, somewhere that was at the edge of somewhere and always seemed off centre and in fall to the south. Why couldn't it be at the centre of the universe? Sure. You know, and it had been in many many ways. I mean, Manchester's know. changed enormously as a city since then. But how much do you think the spark for what is now a predictable capitalist developer sort of yes. the luxury apartments? Yes. How, yes. mu- how much was Factory well, and Hacienda part of the spark which sort of well, got that going? Well, he was unofficially involved in all sorts of decision-making because as a broadcaster he had these ridiculous contacts right. with mainstream politics. Yes. So he was not only this subversive character... Mm-hmm mucking around with the idea of a radical communications company. But he also could inspire and motivate and needle mainstream politicians in his role as a broadcaster. And there's, I, I remember, you know, I think I put it in the book, there was a sense in the 80s, 70s, 80s, Manchester was competing with Barnsley and Stockport mm-hmm. about getting a new shopping centre. Right. And Wilson more or less inspired the notion that you should be competing with Sydney and Los Angeles for the Olympic Games. And, and yes. eventually they got the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Those things definitely came from Wilson. Yeah. The other thing about the architecture of the city, you know, the, the, the only modernist building in Manchester for a long time was the Granada Television Studio, mm-hmm. built in the 50s. The Hacienda came along in the early 80s. It was about the next one along, apart from the obvious concrete sort of skyscrapers. And that was a Tony thing as well. Why yeah. shouldn't we have a New York-style club in Manchester? Uh, yeah. It was preposterous, and for many years it was preposterous, uh, and it didn't exist in a conventional yeah. world. But it inspired, for better or worse, and Savile comes up with a phrase, be careful what you wish for, the whole of the city centre living now is, right. is for me, spread from Hacienda yeah. along the canal, loft-style living. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's beyond the music. Yeah. That's that's a, a, a different kind of was, ambition he has. Slightly helped by the IRA blowing up the... Was it the Arndale Centre? Yes, and, and those moments that change history, Tony's very good at, at, at sort of coming along and adjusting to as well. It's why the you know the book got delayed for many reasons, not least it took me five years to get hold of Alan Erasmus, but also <laughs> because the Manchester <laughs> Arena bombing... Yeah. Changed Manchester considerably from a, from a, where Wilson was much more in the centre of it to another kind of city. Right, and Wilson's position in that history is therefore changed. Right, because he's not that guy we all in the twentieth century all excited about factory, happy Mondays, hacienda. You know, Wilson. He's he's almost a figure that's slipping back into the twentieth century, and his mm. influence is becoming much more ghostly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to relate this to there's a there's a very sort of startling quote from Peter Saville in the book. Ian's death, the death of Ian Curtis, is the point at which the proceeds of Joy Division sales create the empowering facilitator of money for Tony, for Factory. And then I'll skip the next bit, but he says, he says this, I mean, the entire Factory history is based on the capital that is Ian's life, without a doubt. Tragedy that made the city happen the way it did. What did you feel when he said that to you? Peter said it to me many times. Right, okay, in different ways. In different ways. And and we, we all thought it to an extent because we remembered when suddenly a company that had no money had money and they didn't really have an experience knowing what to do with the money. Mm-hmm. And their intention, because of the factory club and one or two other things they'd seen that they didn't really work for them and going to see, you know, the danceteria, the, you know, the, the mud club or the New York clubs, they wanted one of those and they did have a, a, they genuinely had a sincere, naive or sophisticated, whichever way you look at it, community spirit. Why doesn't Manchester have one of those? 
Why isn't it built by an architect? Why doesn't it look fantastic? Why isn't it stylish? Why do we always go to scruffy clubs and get treated, you know, terribly? Why can't we have a club that's almost like an experiment in, in communication and, and has other things on, like William Burroughs at the time would, would be there and Bernard Manning? It was a, a weird <laughs> yeah. Dada variety club for a while. Yeah. And, uh, but it was a genuine sort of commitment yeah, to yeah. something, and they had the money to do it. And, of course, the, the, the joke was, you know, that all of Joy Division's money goes into it, and then very early, you know, Stephen Morris especially would be going along and paying to get into his own club <laughs> <laughs> because there, there was, you know, there was no quite sort of clear view of how how, how it worked. And Tony talks, uh, you know, I remember Tony saying about how you know the, 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 they got cabs to get everybody home in the early hours of the morning from the Hacienda. And it took him a while to realise that everybody in, in in the club was using these free cabs to get to every single party around Manchester for quite a while, you know, and they were getting these huge cab bills. So for a while, it was a, a formless, strange thing before sort of Mike Pickering and, and collaborators sort of realised yeah, yeah. that it needed a, a central purpose, which was dance. Yeah, yeah. yes. Much to Tony's surprise, in a way, because well, he wasn't took, really a dance fan, you know. Uh, and it took a, a while for the dance nights to really start working, didn't it? I mean, yes. it, so years ago, I saw to Mike Pickering about it. Said, yes. you know, it really felt like an up struggle oh, yes, for a it, long time yeah there was there were still moments even with the dance that it wasn't really yeah, yeah. came. and then of course what rather wonderfully when it did become it and mike pickering was getting access to these great dance records and making great dance records mm-hmm. tony didn't want them on factory <laughs> so when right on time is number one he, he <laughs> well that's on pete hadfield deconstruction which is pete yes uh, pete hadfield exactly. Was, exactly. Uh, the manager yeah the yes. man, yes. male manager our single was the first deconstruction single and the second one was was it a Pickering one? It was one of something along those lines. Oh, it, probably, it really yeah. was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, so, um, Tony could have had some Tony could have had all of that. They're throwing a party to congratulate Mike on being number one of the charts and at the same time Factory are launching their classical label, <laughs> selling, <laughs> selling maybe 12 copies. Right, yeah. And, and, and in a way, Tony was more comfortable with those maverick decisions rather than making the easy decision, oh, even though it was obvious. He didn't want to do that because then, then course, it would yeah. devalue it, it would cancel it out. But then, of know. course, the great irony is that New Order themselves became a sort of serious dance act in 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 many many respects. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, At least they loved dance music, as you said. They, every time they went to New York, they'd be yes. done sort of you know at the, at the Paradise Garage for yes. God's sake, you know, yeah, watching yeah, yeah. Larry Levan. So, so Wilson's blind spot about dance yes. is really frustrating in that way, isn't well, it? I think that's right. Look, we'll talk about New Order in a minute, yeah. actually. But I just want to ask you, as a sort of last thing, apart from just recommending this book to anyone who you know loves Manchester, loves Factory, loves Joy Division, Tony Wilson. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary book. And it's loves very biographies, personal. Huh? and loves biographies, and loves biographies. <laughs> I want to write a kind of biography that, that you know about a rock. <laughs> A subject, if you like, that is also just a biography about a really fascinating, complicated person as well. You know. Yeah, because otherwise you do get bogged down a little bit into yeah. that sentimental nostalgia side of it. To me, I wanted to just represent a complicated, unusual, magnificent, irritating figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Com- completely. Well, and it's it's from Manchester with love from Paul Morley. It's what it is, and I really, <laughs> really recommend it. I was I was utterly absorbed by it. I do want just briefly mm. to ask you. Whether your experience, you know, writing about Factory, being around, you know, Tony, Alan Erasmus, Rob Gretton, etc. How did that 
influence your time at ZTT with Trevor? Well, uh, considerably. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, Wilson has been a huge influence on me in lots of ways that have, have been difficult for me in some ways because I wasn't built like him. But he showed you you could do other things. Mm-hmm. So I found myself slipping mm-hmm. into it, you know, forming virtually a record label, into broadcasting, into television, things I wasn't comfortable with. And, and I was much more of a shy bedroom kid than Tony ever was and didn't really have his media training. But absolutely, he, he, he made you think you could do that in, in the way that he encouraged Savile. I mean, this is the great thing about Wilson, as infuriating as he could be, as bitchy as he could be. He was also a great encourager, and, yeah. and you found yourself being inspired by him without really understanding it, you know. And ZTT, he, he never talked to me about ZTT. Did he not? No, no. Uh, not even to, like, pat you on no, the back? No, 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 because it wasn't about Manchester. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it didn't exist. It didn't exist. It didn't. Even when not I was real one, and for Frank, nine weeks. And Frankie was and from Frankie. Liverpool. And Frankie yeah. was from Liverpool. Yeah, <laughs> even worse. <laughs> Gretton did, of course. Gretton was always, oh, you just stole all our ideas. Which I, I, I did and I didn't. I had other ideas didn't, of didn't. my no, own. I think that's you know. right, yeah. But no, there was no doubt that, that what I wanted to do, and, and I made it almost a part of my um, initial... Dream was was have this amazing house producer like they had. They had yeah. Hannett and uh, Trevor Horn. Cool. But Trevor Horn had a Fairlight, and they wouldn't allow Martin Hannett to have a Fairlight because they bought the they did the Hacienda instead of giving Martin the Fairlight, which caused great kerfuffles because he wanted <laughs> yeah. great records, not a great building. He wanted great records. I had access to great records because of Trevor. But I wanted to do it... First of all, I wanted to see if I could make a, a guy who'd been in the Buggles hip. Yeah, so yeah. I made his next group Art of Noise and made them a completely different thing, which I, I really took great pride in doing. And also I just wanted to apply some of the principles of, of learning and knowledge and, and excitement and glamour that we were all getting from popular culture and what popular culture was that, that, that Factory had definitely inspired me into thinking mm. and put it into a label that was also popular. Sure. And so I was very, very, you know, always waiting for the moment Tony, Tony would either beat me up for plagiarism or, or congratulate me. And I got neither. I got indifference and a few years sulking. No, you know. I, I was assigned to write the, the cover story on ZTT, and it's coming back to me now that the headline, it wasn't my headline, was How to Make a Spectacle of Yourself. Yes. I think this is, yes, uh, yeah. Yes. ZTT and is the fine Mon- art of Is making... that Monty Smith, do you think, or something? Mm, I don't no, know. Who it, no, I think no. Monty's gone by then, <laughs> no, so right. I'm not sure. Who, who, who drummed Yeah, you do up. these really sincere <laughs> intellectual articles and then you give it yeah. a bit of... I always remember, it puzzled me for years when I did Lou Reed and the headline was, I love it when you talk dirty. <laughs> and I didn't know what they meant for years and I suddenly realised, oh, they thought I was too soft on him. You know, which is bloody Lou Reed, you know, he, he oh, gave me half an hour, had a stopwatch, stopwatch and walked yeah. off halfway through the a question. Standard Lou Reed the idea experience. of being soft on him. But that's, and it was, <laughs> okay. and I worked to get this interview and that's what their bloody headline was. <laughs> that, that is fantastic. Another of the pieces is this piece I remember very well, which is your review of the first London show by New Order. The Haunting of Heaven. I remember being haunted by that very title because I had come slightly late to Joy Division. Yes. I, mean, I never saw them live. Yes. And, and, it, and I bought 
unknown pleasures and closer and and you know i mean fell fell head over heels for them and so i was intrigued by this idea that they were someone kind of go on and yes. your, your piece is very it's very honest about how awkward it is and how nervous they are and obviously bernard can't really sing mm. and all of this stuff but it's very it's actually very moving as well it's a moving piece about what happens after in commit suicide yes and that's really, I think, quite a good sort of segue into hearing the first of the clips. Yeah, of- so, I mean, this, this, this is Bernard Sumner, or Barney, depending on who you're talking to. Mm. Yes, let's call him Bernard for, um, the, ben, for but, the purposes of the podcast. Um, and he's talking about some music after Joy Division. Yeah. As you finished, a lot of music changed. Not just ours, but a lot of people's music changed. You can't top topping yourself. <laughs> so and, uh, all the other groups that were our competition blew away in the wind because no one had the guts to top themselves. I mean, that's almost as shocking in a way. I know it's six years after the, the fact, but it's almost as shocking as the Peter Savile quote to hear we, 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 But I think that. it was the way we were all dealing with it at the time. Yeah. And I remember I did a New Order documentary and I, I mocked up a quiz show where New Order were on a quiz show that mm-hmm. was about New Order. And I always remember when the question was, who's the laziest member in the group? This was 1991. Who's the laziest member in the group? And Huggy went, Ian Curtis hasn't done a fucking thing for years. <laughs> And, and that is manky and humorous. And, and it was it? a way we were dealing with yeah, it. And sure. also, we were all in shock. I mean, I, all yeah, of us, I, I had a suicide elsewhere with my father. We were all yes, in shock in all sorts of right. ways. And I think we're also in a kind of guilt because I, I, I don't know about how you approach this, but when you were listening to certain music and these lyrics were extraordinary, they're saying so much about certain things and you weren't in a funny sort of way paying attention. No. And afterwards, you go, well, it was bloody obvious. Yes. It was every single yeah. song he was singing about it. Yeah. But you and, and the band themselves would yeah. say this. They didn't think yeah. that he really meant it I, because we were used to hearing uh, Bowie and Iggy and the Velvet yeah. Underground. You didn't think they meant Plus it. Plus, also, you know? it's amazing how you can be in a band and actually never know the words of the songs you're playing. Yes, absolutely. You know, because yes. you're too busy playing a guitar absolutely. or whatever it is. You know, yeah. uh, all of that. I mean, at the end of the podcast, we'll play another quote, which is actually really good. Is Bernard Sumner again talking about the first time he ever went round to uh, Ian Curtis's house? Mm. And Ian Curtis played him. China Girl. China Girl, you mm. know, Iggy Pop. Iggy's and and, 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 then, he, and then, he, then he played him Bowie, and then he played him Crawford. Yes. All of which are out of his, his experience. That's right. He just hadn't heard these people. Yes. No, it's extraordinary that to hear Bernard say he'd never listened to Iggy Pop. Yes. Yeah. In 1970. He, he was like a Wishbone Ash man. Yeah, that's right. Sort of yeah. I mean, you know, you'd, listen, you'd heard Bowie, but you hadn't heard Low, yeah. which is yeah. what Ian Curtis played because, him. Because in a way, there was still a. An expert end of things. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 you know, and, and a band would always have the expert. And, yeah. and, and the further you move back into the band, to the drummer, it yeah. got less expertise. It was uh, more just playing. <laughs> and yes. Ian, in that sense, was the curator, as the modern yeah. world, word would be, in terms of opening up all these influences. Sure. You know? yeah. I mean, it's a very good, this interview, I mean, they're, they're talking about Brotherhood's just, just come out and about how basically they wrote most of it in the studio mm. and also how they make decisions. And it's sort of democratically, the band was 
in a, in a way that very few bands are, that there is discussion about what's going to be used and a consensus yes. is reached of some description. Yes. How do, you, do you believe that? <laughs> well, I, I know for a fact when I talked to any engineer later that worked with New Order, they would say, you know, in all sincerity, they had no bloody idea how right. it worked, you know, mm-hmm. that somehow it did. Mm-hmm. You know, individually they came together, well, the, the Stephen and Gillian Access, the Hooky and the Barney. Yeah. But they had no idea how it worked technically, it just did. I, I, that, that's sort of the impression I get. And, and, and in a way they were all in their separate zones. Yeah. I mean, for me, my favourite quote about Barney, about Hooky, was I wish that bastard would stop playing those bloody bass guitar solos over my great songs, because <laughs> Hooky would just play this yeah, bass, yeah. and then it would chop, be chopped up almost into its sure. parts, fair enough, you know. Yeah. But, of course, later it would seem so coherent, you would never know that. So they were coming in from different places. The, the, the irony know. is that Peter Hook reminds me more of Chris Squire from Yes than any other musician. <laughs> That's a most excellent call. <laughs> which, <laughs> which I'm not sure many people would, you know, would want to hear that, but, but, but he, he really played like Chris Squire used to play with yes. early yes, when he's yes. climbing. But he's all the time, right? a bit like Entwistle as well, just constantly. Yeah, yeah, so well, just well, constantly yeah, soloing. Yeah, yeah, and Barney yeah. would, you know, he would like, yeah. like <laughs> an Irish grapple. Sure, great and terrible. But Stephen talks about the previous, the first three albums, kind of very interestingly. He talks about Peter Savile's album sleeves. They also talk about. It's a kind of meta interview. They talk about being interviewed a lot. Mm. And this is Martin great... Aston interviewing That's... them, and, and and sort of at one point, Martin is a strange interview because he's always asking why. Why did you do this? Mm. Why did you make this album? Mm. Why do you do interviews? You know, it's yeah. like, which you would almost think. Yeah, why do I? I'm off. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's Sparrow's into the bit in Stephen Morris's interview where they actually talk for about ten minutes about being interviewed. I mean, mm. it's very it's odd. odd. Very well, meta. Play, play this quote, which is uh, about New Order not being a proper group. Yes. So, New Order aren't a proper group. Um, in that's in the, the no, I don't think we are. I don't think we're we're not. Um, like, um, I don't think we ever will be. One of us want to uh, goes out and see you know, like just quick little things like don't want to mind on telly. Yeah, yeah. We if we mind on telly, we probably on telly a lot more. because yeah. it's a real hassle playing live. But I think. Um, I think it's a comp. You know, you try to make make it seem like you're better than you are. The average person's got to see see on telly and think that's what you actually sound like. I've got to realise that that sounds months of production or something. Stuff. I mean, the sound quality isn't great because it's backstage, I think, at the Albert Hall. I think they is, well, playing... they've just played a show. They've clearly just played it. I mean, because yeah, you referred back to the town and country, and yeah. apparently they were brilliant. And then, I don't know what well, well, venue anyway, they, just... they were. They were about to play another, another show, is, 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 you know, promoting the album, because yeah. the album came out in uh, September of 86, and this okay. is the 6th of October. Anyway, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I mean, what's your take on New Order, Paul? I'm intrigued to know, you know, compared to Joy Division, and we, oh, there's been many more years of New Order. What, how uh, yes. would you, what are your feelings about the well, New Order the, corpus the, the, of work? The, they were an entirely different group. Yeah. Although yeah. Barney does say how, what you were saying before about Ian playing Barney records. Right. Because of Ian, 
the craft work was beginning to come into Joy Division anyway. Right. Uh, around the time Ian died, you know, it was a fa- it was an element that would have come, and they may well have gone electronic the way they did anyway, because um, you know Ian was as alert to what was going on as anybody in that sense. And 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 what was interesting is also the time thing is interesting with New Order because they're one of the few groups that have managed to survive for forty years, but somehow still seem to fit into everything else, which I think is is part to do with their attitude towards yeah. things they don't engage they're not a group in that mm-hmm. sense long periods of time go by when nothing much happens Barney hates playing live you know I think he's only playing live a little bit more now to get up Peter's nose because <laughs> Peter I don't know if you know but Peter allegedly said when they weren't going to use him anymore live he said it's a bit like Queen without Freddie Mercury <laughs> which I think was and, and most, most of his annoyance they then just used tapes of him playing so it, it didn't matter as long as the sound was there no one really noticed him that- no. That's a pretty big schism, wasn't it, between Hook and the rest of the band? Huge, I think. Yes, uh, Barney put it down to the way Peter would eat crisps. (laughs) <laughs> you just couldn't stand seeing it in the in the van That's the anymore. thing that makes you snap in the yeah, end, in, snap, a, in a marriage or a business. But of course, box. you know they spent a large amount of time not together, you know, and they were yeah. an illusion. And, and I, I suppose none of us realised it would carry on for forty years. No, you know? no, no. Yes, I mean, there's, you write beautifully in the book about the song "Temptation," which. Yeah. It reminds me, in some ways, that's, like, my favourite New Order track. I don't think they ever got any better than that. And there have been... I can't say I love a lot of New Order. I mean, there's the odd track that I think is great. Mm -hmm. But it just doesn't do, for me, what Joy Division did. Yeah, Temptation, Um, for me, was very much in that period between Love Will Tear Us Apart and Blue Monday. Yes. When New New Order weren't actually taking off. And there Mm. were... and And I wrote that particular piece in the NME because the NME's attitude was they were done. It was all over. And, yes. of course, Blue Monday hadn't yet come and, and found that wonderful mank way of, of, of making the house rhythm accessible to white kids. It was quite <laughs> a breakthrough, I think, in terms of that yeah. white dance kids suddenly emerging. Yeah, it, was, well, it was Blue Monday. Hannah, Blue Monday is basically like a, it's like a sort of boys' town disco. Hannah, 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 Hannah produced all that stuff too, didn't he? The, uh, he, he produced the early... Well, that's a good question. When, when he produced did... Movement. Movement, yeah. Right. Which is very... It's still Joy Division. Which is, is, a, is a transference ceremony. Because he yeah. was, Ceremony he, is a good one. He was always very interested in repetition. Almost like sort of dance music repetition. And, I mean, he helped develop the AMS digital delay because that's been built yes, just down the road. Right, yes. And they'd bring one into his studio and chuck it into, into his rack, and, which is a very, really effectively a very early sampler, you know, yes, like a 10-second right. sampler. And Hannah was very interested in this sort of automating of, God, of yes. grooves. Yes. Uh, and that, I think, is something which carried on through New Order's To some, to some degree, some, although some I degree. think sonically it's a lot less interesting. Provocative question. Yeah. If it hadn't been for <laughs> Martin Hannah, would we be talking about Joy Division? Probably not in the sense that it had that kind of timelessness that if the... Barney and Hookie had been responsible for the sound it wouldn't have had and of course they didn't really like it because they it was doing like something it. that didn't make sense to them mm-hmm. because the Black Sabbath wispon ass side of them kicked in <laughs> and, and it I sounded... didn't know there was even a Black Sabbath <laughs> yeah, side to look, you know, I think Hannett was thinking okay if you want your Black Sabbath I'll give you some Perubu and mix the two up yeah, you know? yeah right so there was that element yeah. you know but I think absolutely in terms of all producers ultimately creating what we now think is, uh, you know, a Jimmy Miller with the Stones or whatever. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. hearing Jimmy Miller largely, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and that that sort of invisible side of it. Uh, even the engineers often even didn't get 
you know, get any kind of credit as songwriters, were making an enormous contribution to the songs themselves, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think Hannett, absolutely. But then, you know, it, it, it's a mix, isn't it? I think it's Hannett, it's, it's Gretton's attitude, it's Savile, and it's Wilson. It's a bit of everything. Even though Wilson's yes. got nothing to do with it directly. Mm-hmm. Some, somehow the, the combination of conversations he would have with them in his cheerleader way fed into the confidence of the group. Yeah, you know? yeah. So even though Ian is, is on a trajectory that leads, obviously, where it leads, he's being cheerleaded by Tony, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not completely. quite understanding to his, ultimately, it's more personal chagrin that, that he didn't help Ian in a way that he could have, but could he? Yeah, but also, not, you know? I mean, that's the, the times. I mean, yeah. we now people talk far more about where they're at emotionally and so on and oh, so God, forth. Oh, God, yeah. There's yeah. all of that sort of stuff. You know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, you, we were so buttoned up. It was, it, and also it was effectively snap out of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's one of the things I always loved about your writing, Paul, because I, mean, I started writing in front of me early 81, something like that. And you did write very... I mean, is emotionally the wrong word? I mean, but you did obviously put yourself into it, which to me was more honest. And yeah. you actually talked about how music affected you emotionally yeah. and psychologically. Yeah, it seemed important. I, I always thought it was a, a funny argument that I, I guess reached its... You know, cultural wars, visible cultural wars element with, with the, the 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 Q element of it, because there was this sense that if you put yourself in the piece, it was somehow wrong, and that you should have this objectivity. But I was, I would always argue that even if you didn't use I or me, it's still about you. It's still so. Subjective. What are you hiding? There is you know? no view mm. from nowhere. No, right? absolutely. That's, so, and, and, and for me, every, I, I guess also because it was very from very early days, the fact that I was going off to interview Debbie Howie and Patty Smith and Chrissy Hind and and Mark Bowl and, and and Iggy Pop and Lou Reed before I was even 21, 22, I, I had to report on this experience yeah, apart sure. from anything else because it was a ridiculous thing to be doing. I'm suddenly in a room with Patty Smith. <laughs> yes. How can I not say how I feel about it? <laughs> yeah. you know, it's ridiculous. I, I, you know. I, I, I agree. Do you think your style then kind of just developed organically or did you kind of choose to recognise this thread of style and you kind of pursued it? You talked earlier about your writing style. So I yeah, I, I think it developed out of the things I was interested in and what turned me on and also how to structure pieces. I was always very interested in how you structured a feature and very interested in those people that set precedent in that world, mm. you know, Richard Meltzer and Idris Walters. You know, I love the way that they would make a piece, an entertainment, an event, yeah. a thing separate. It was different. It was distinctive. And I always try to make every single piece I wrote have a different structure. Mm. It was very important yeah. to me as a piece of, of uh, as a way of making something not the same as everything as else. Everything else. Yeah. And as, as more and more people have joined in, I think that's really quite interesting that about 99% of people write about music more or less the same way. And they're, therefore, they're not using style, no. and, and therefore, they're not really representing what they feel about music because they're leaving an awful lot out about your, your own personal response to it. You know, which yeah, is exactly. abstract. It's not necessarily a, a, a commercial or a critical judgment. It's more abstract than that. Shall we talk briefly about the week's featured acts on the homepage, which is Faust? They were obviously a krautrock group defined by uh, in a piece that were featured by Ian McDonald from early '73 in Enemy. Uh, he calls them the by far the most extreme of the German experimental bands. I thought it'd be interesting just to talk about them because they have a box set out, yeah. 1971 to 74. They're they're great albums, and to some extent, what we call krautrock was you know had some influence or cast some sort of shadow over the Manchester sound, didn't it? Yeah. I think, and I just wondered whether you 
So my question would be, did you get into Faust and Neu and Kraftwerk and everything at a relatively early point? Or? Pretty immediately. Yeah. I mean, mm. one of the great, obviously the great doorways was the 48 pence Faust yes. tapes, where you're suddenly Absolutely. buying an album you could afford. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, you know, some people hoped it would sound like Slade and return <laughs> off that kind of music forever. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. they would have bought a single. They could have bought a single for 48 people. They thought, oh, I'll buy an album. And it had a Bridget Riley sleeve. It looked yeah. amazing. It was fantastic. It was fabulous. It was obviously a marketing thing for Virgin Records. Yeah. But we didn't know that. And it was a work. It, it struck me immediately as something I adored. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and very early, you, you had an instinctive response. And some people would fall off. And other people would say, and I think everybody that more or less formed some of those early bands, but certainly the four. And certainly when you would listen to John Peel and you would have this wonderful combination where it would go from a, a German record to a dub record to yes. an old rock and roll record, and the, the language seemed the same. Yeah. yeah, It shared something. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And that, yeah. that I always think The Fall sounded like an early John Peel show, all just in one place. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's what you were hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really, yeah. Slid yeah. from, from yeah. thing to thing. Yeah. And in that's the middle the of that for the group. would be, yeah. you know, yeah. Noi and Tangerine Dream and... Cra- and, and you, Roy. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. I certainly bought that that when it came out, because it's a cheap yes. record and everyone I knew sort of did and you're, you're obviously right it kind of split its audience because yeah. for, for every kind of five people who hated it there'll yeah. be like two people who thought it was just the most interesting thing they'd heard in their lives yes. and then of course then we'd all go out and get Tega Mega by Cam for example I mean there was a sort of yeah, process yeah, yeah. Where absolutely went, went one out. thing led to the other and, and obviously very quickly you've got groups like Cabaret Voltaire emerging right and Daniel Miller yeah and, yes. and that's coming out of that and that's connected very definitely with 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 punk because yeah. they're, 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 it's almost like crudely speaking the return of a single so oddly out of this weird psychedelic music that had come from germany it, it filtered into people making singles mm. and and disrupted and, and subverted the idea of what I, a single i think it also had this valuable quality that those it, it sounds quite angry is not necessarily the right word but the germans didn't sound optimistic it's not sort of Playful and pranksterish in their way. Yes, but but there is there is a darkness there. Which is 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 that to do with our perception? Because they're German and we're still carrying this baggage around. Well, also they were were carrying the baggage around. They're they're repairing as well. They're repairing society. They're they're repairing a gap in the 20th century. Absolutely, and working out what would have happened if that didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're listening to what's coming from you know the Grateful Dead and and that kind of music coming over. You know, quick you know Quicksilver's and all these things. And and somehow that need to repair yeah, also yeah. connected with with punk, yes. and certainly with Johnny Lydon with Public Image, for instance. It, sure, it sounds angry, it sounds ugly, yeah. it sounds distressing because, because in a way they're trying to repair something that has broken down. Right, and, so, and, they, and they were consciously rejecting yes. the sort of Anglo-American and tradition, the cliche, all they? the cliches. I mean, there's yeah. there's yeah, there's so even in this early piece by MacDonald, yes. Uwe Nettleback, is that how yes. you would yes. pronounce Uwe, it? Yeah. Uwe, yeah, Uwe, 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 Nettleback, yes, who of course, he had a very radical background yes. and, and was tangentially involved with the Red Army faction yes. and all of that. Yes. And, you know, he talks explicitly about, you know, we, we've just, we wanted not to be influenced by any of that yes. you know, West Coast musical, you know. Yes. So it's very and that, that's why it was unfortunate that it did get called crowd rock. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Because in a way, it became almost a gimmick in a funny sort of way. I mean, musicians and young musicians at the time didn't respond to it as a gimmick, but there was a sense that it yeah. had been packaged and tamed a bit like I, world again, music. Again, the, the enemy yeah. subs, and we, we, have, we have ways of making you listen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. It's, it's just a terrible thing. Just, well, what's did your it, take on did this? It, did it feel then like they were speaking a different musical language from what 
was being certainly when you listen to the Faust tapes, yeah. 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 But, th- but did it feel kind of radical, like a sort of different angle? <sighs> Well, but, but it was refreshing because of that, because, I mean, my, my early take on it was very much that it, which, which would be more contentious to say now, but it was interesting conceptually at the time, that it, that it, it had come from a different place than the blues. Mm-hmm. And we were very yes. used to that, and we knew where that was going and what had happened with that, and it had turned negative in a way. So the idea there was suddenly a, mm-hmm. a, a new influx of incredible ideas that were coming from all sorts mm-hmm. of places, like, like Barney was saying, also from art places as yeah. well there was an art approach to the I, I, I mean I, I also felt I mean I was a big Cam fan yeah. back then 72 73 74 and I was a Grateful Dead fan and I could see what they'd got from mm. as you just said Quicksilver and Grateful Dead from that mm. psychedelic exploration mm. sort of that was in there it sounded quite different but you know that it's there there's a, that that's so I mean you know it, it sounded very different yeah but there's enough in there yeah, which, yeah, 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 yeah. and also what they're doing in a, in, a, in a way many of these German musicians were like classical musicians. Yeah. Yes. But they'd made this extraordinary choice that is still rare to be influenced by things outside the classical yes. tradition. Mm-hmm. So suddenly they're throwing in all sorts of elements. Kraftwerk, to me, were always a classical ensemble that happened to make pop music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just yeah. did it sublimely, mm. you know. But yeah, they, were, yeah. they, were, they were rooted in Brahms and Bach as much as they were yeah. in the Beats yeah. Boys and, and, and whatever also else. very rooted in Stockhausen and people like that. Absolutely. Who, who then actually, some yeah. of them had actually worked Absolutely. with, you know. So. And, and I think, again, that has to do with trying to create something from rubble. Is trying to it is. Trying it's, to, yeah. it's, it's building. It's building, building a new society. If you can you know. find it on iTunes, there's a really good series about the development of German electronic music and studios yeah, after the war. Yeah, it's fascinating, because mm. there was a lot of investment. Yes. For, I mean, obviously, partly from the yeah, American... The Allied, the, kind of, yes. know, the, the Marshall okay. Plan and everything. But then the, the studios suddenly became... Interestingly, because there was some lingering equipment that yeah. had been developed That's by right. the Nazis that kind of Very good was stuff, revolutionary. Like yeah. These sort of big yeah. microphones. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right, exactly. So there's this, there's this really <laughs> strange confluence of factors. That... <laughs> and headphones. And also, <laughs> it, was, it was that Everything. idea that the first three Kraftwerk albums that they sort of disown. Mm. Was also interesting because it came out of that world, yeah, the, yeah, the world yeah, of the laboratory, yeah. the, 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 yeah. the the technology, but, yeah. and, then, and then they wanted, then they realised that what they needed to put into it, it was almost that moment the Moog synthesizer gets a keyboard. Previously, it's just buttons That's and it's noise. Suddenly, it has a keyboard and it becomes a musical instrument. Mm. You know, it becomes yeah. because it, yeah. there's rhythm suddenly. Yeah. And Kraftwerk, yeah. a great symbol of that change. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to read just the, the last of the piece about Faust. Is by David Stubbs, yeah. who of course wrote the definitive Krautrock book. It's from 2004 in The Wire, and he'd sent off for these. Re- Chris Cutler had reissued all the early Faust albums, and he waited ten months for them to to arrive. <laughs> you know, bated <laughs> breath. They finally arrived, and he says, "I tried to interest schoolmates in Faust via a show and tell session during general studies. I mean, he must be like fourteen or something. I didn't get past track one. Why don't you eat carrots?" A coalition of six-form punks... Oh, he's in six-form. A coalition of six-form punks and proggies jeered and stamped their feet with the deliberate intention of making the needle skip about the vinyl, creating a fast-cut musical montage of their own. <laughs> Funny at my expense, naturally. But there was a baying, reactionary fury underlying their derision, reminiscent of crowds mm. who rioted at the premiere of The Rite of Spring. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what's, what's glorious about that as well is that reminder of, of when music was really taken seriously as a matter of life or death. You know yeah. that, that hierarchy that's 
everything's broken down now and Ava yeah. is suddenly the Velvet Underground, you know. Mm-hmm. Back then, that thing that you really were, you know, you had your side and you were on it and you would fight it yeah. tooth I, and nail because it was so important. I, I'd taken my brother's copy of White Light, White Heat to a party when I was at school. I was about kind of 13 or 14. <laughs> And I, I, I put it on, and everyone's like, take it off, man, you're bringing us down. Yeah, yeah. It's a bummer, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have a tote on this. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so, that was yeah. brave of you. Yeah. Sister Ray. Sister yeah, Ray. Let's get a, yeah. <laughs> um, get the kids dancing. So that's Faust. I do want to just mention in passing before we talk about the new library highlights that we've lost two of our writers this week. Bob Fisher, who was an NME writer. Yeah. Have you ever overlapped with Bob Fisher, Paul? Probably not. But he was, along with like Cliff White, Bill Miller and others, one uh, of Roger the first... Pierre, yeah. Roger St-Pierre, one of the and Tony Cummings, yeah. one of the first sort of notable like white writers on black American music. Absolutely, or, you know, yeah. White English yes. writers on... Yeah. Yeah. So wrote a lot about soul yes. and funk and, you know, went on the road with the Ohio players, <laughs> etc. And uh, came to have lunch with us a couple of years ago, I yeah. think, with, with, with Bill Miller. And it was a very, yeah, I mean, it was a very sudden heart attack and uh, 74. So very sad to lose him. Also, another, you know, white expert on black rhythm and blues and other American musics, Pete Grandisa, one of the sort of scholars right. of particularly rhythm and blues sure. and did numerous sort of sleeve notes for bare family box sets mm-hmm. of you know like mm-hmm. little esther phillips and mm-hmm. so forth so a real scholar mm-hmm. connoisseur of that stuff and so we're adding a piece the piece by bob we're adding is about soul style in the midlands so it's in the northern soul era but he's going to like soul discos in yeah, the midlands yeah. and reporting on the baggies that they're wearing and um, pete's piece is about the making of rhythm and blues it's got a scholarly piece about how rhythm and blues actually was sort of born uh, I, I heard yesterday that dion estes the ba- wham's bass player yes. died yes that's um, correct and his his kind of role was to bring black credibility to this white pop band he was kind of a, a bedreadlocked bass player very good player. Very good Very player. player. Very good player, so yes. There, there we go. Yes, and we have also lost uh, Paddy Maloney of the Chieftains, but none of us feel really qualified to talk about the Chieftains. But suffice to say, there are two interviews with Paddy that we're featuring sure. on the homepage, so we say goodbye to... Um, can anyone pronounce the name of the pipes that he... What, the Ulian or whatever it is? Something like that. Ulian, Ulian, I think it's a little closer to Ilian. Ilian, OK. I'm not sure. I could, it's could be completely Celtic wrong. pronunciation, but... isn't it? Yes. Anyway, a huge figure in the history of Irish music. Mark, tell us about what you, some of the pieces you've added. Yeah, the last fortnight. Um, and jump in any time that you feel... Mm, you know, absolutely. The spirit takes Compelled. It's compelled. By the spirit. Rory and O'Grady interviews Keith Richards, Ray of 1965, and he's talking about the old... Was it Edith Grove or Gunter? It was Edith Grove. Edith Grove. I'm pretty yeah. sure it was Edith yeah. Grove. And it says you had to light a candle to go upstairs to the toilet, and the only thing that worked was Brian's radiogram. I love that radiogram. This sort of, like, just that was the only thing that worked in the whole yeah, house. Yeah, in the house until, until Keith broke it. <laughs> <laughs> Penny Valentine singles reviews disc music echo November '66. Reviewing Lorraine Ellison's Stay With Me. Titanic and, uh, record. Well, and this is what Penny Valentine has to say. She said, out of all the records I get in, I have a very special collection of about 40 that all have something very special for me. This goes straight to the top of that pile. Ignoring the prejudice cries of my office colleagues, hysterical nonsense, neurotic noise, I give you Stay With Me. 
I give you a spine-tinging song of us despair, sung by this girl with shrieking possessiveness. It is impossible to explain what this record does to me, and I'm sorry to say its appeal will, will be limited. But please listen to it and have your emotions shredded and shattered and admire anyone who can stand in between four cold studio walls and let go like this. Wow. wow. Isn't it great God bless when Penny. somebody gets what? it immediately yeah. and nothing changes, and nothing changes. <laughs> ever since? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of my favourite records ever. Yeah. You know? and, and someone's described what it. What a great piece of perfectly writing Perfectly, poetically, straight away. Like, and her, probably her male colleagues, you can't handle can the you emotion of it, describe it yeah. as, well, dismiss it as hysterical. Except you know it's probably too stoned and underneath the yeah, office man. desk. Neurotic um, noise, man. Neurotic <laughs> <laughs> noise. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's fantastic stuff. No, no, David Griffiths interviewing Roger Waters' Pink Floyd in 67. And he said, We had some photographs done, only in black and white, using a psychedelic slide superimposed on us. Some fans had written asking for pictures, wrote back wondering if we'd spilt something on the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> they really believed something had gone wrong. I love it. Oh, so um, Nick Mason's in the same thing. And remember, they, they trained as architects. He says, I'm always on the lookout for someone who's half a million pounds to spare who wants me to design in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I love the spilling. That's, that's great. great isn't it? <laughs> Maybe that's the true birth of psychedelia. Yes. Someone's spilled a glass of water on a, on a colour picture. Um, Robert Shelton saw a multi band lineup in the New York Times in 68. One of them was Iron Butterfly, who I saw, I saw Yes supporting Iron Butterfly. You the other lucky, one in, lucky 19, boy. in 1971. <laughs> yes was superb. Iron Butterfly were Iron Butterfly. <laughs> um, he says, Iron Butterfly also mainly on a psychedelic rock heavy tangent, with full phalanxes of sound roaring from stage. The group went out with a production number that sounded and looked like a plane crash, with four <laughs> fires on stage. Unfortunately, it was as comfortable as a crash, but how else does an iron butterfly depart? Ooh. I love that name. Is it, I mean, which came first, Led Zeppelin or Iron Butterfly? That's the good, name that, is that, that's like, Those cool or sorts, like, that's you it, know, that, like juxtaposed two really different elements. That's a good question. I wouldn't, I think I wouldn't be surprised if it was Iron Butterfly. I think, I think Iron Butterfly, iron butterfly yeah. did come before them. Page was very aware of all the American kind of yeah. rock groups, and Vanilla Fudge were part of yeah, the for Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patti Smith interviewed by Stephen DeMorris, Sounds, 1978. And I, well, I had, I'd never read this before. She says that she suffered naturally from hallucinations as a as a girl, as a very as a girl and young woman used to hallucinate. She says, "I was at a party once, and suddenly a lily came out of my mouth, and then it became a huge trumpet." With that kind of stuff going on, why should I want to take acid? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> very good. When you were men- when you mentioned Patsy Smith earlier, I mean, I, it isn't. I was going to say one always forgets. We don't mm. forget, but in mm. a way. For me, as mm. a as a, like, a punter and reader of the enemy and so forth, it was horses. Really, was sort of the beginning of of punk rock. Really, yes, I think. Even though I, I had MC Five albums and Stooges albums, yeah, it, it, that was sort of the birth of, of the sensibility. And it, I, it, so, it, I saw the Roundhouse show. Yes, me too. Yes, yeah. definitely. I couldn't yeah. get in. I was yes. outside. Were you? Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> 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 and, 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 I nicked your ticket, <laughs> and, and, and I guess Lenny in the middle of it helped that as well, and, yes. and, and just that sheer drama 
Because it was it was a rebirth in a way, wasn't it? It was something beginning again, and so the minimalism of it was great. The black yeah, and white, yeah, yeah. Th- more great everything. cover art. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, a, a girl in the, ha- the flat I shared bought it when it came out, and we just listened to it obsessively. Sure. I mean, I went off her quite quickly after that because I, think... I'm, I was getting into other stuff, you know. Yeah. But that 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 first album, I thought horses. I thought it was just we actually have Len- Lenny is going to be a guest well, on the podcast well, in November. And so the, the, the next, the next question. Send in your questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the next one he says, Lenny and I knew we weren't great at the beginning, but we felt like human alarm clocks. Wake up! Wake up! Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it was actually. That sense of there's there's something much more out there that we're not getting. Yes. And suddenly she she showed us the way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Almost just just those moments before she started. As well, just yes. the sheer presence. I mean, it's you know. that and then a Ramones album coming out with mm. all these kind of like one and a half minute songs mm. on, and it was like these... it was interesting. Yeah, coming from New York again, yeah, you know that sense that there's just a compression yeah. of a sensation into into music. Yeah, you know, I, I can remember where I was when I heard both those albums the yes. first time, and I yeah. can't say that about yeah, many me records. Too. Yes, me too. You know, <laughs> so true. <laughs> Uh, moving quite a long way forward uh, and staying in Matched as it happens is Martin Price of 808 State to Dully for Dully, uh, The Enemy in 1990. And it's about ecstasy. I don't want anyone coming up to me after they've had drugs telling me how much they love me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was wow. all point effect. Um, <laughs> what, what, what's your, do you have a comment on that? No, how well, many people came remember, up and told you they love people? I, I and how many people did you approach no, most, and mostly, say, you're my best Mostly, mate. I hate you. But I do remember Martin telling me <laughs> very early doors about Hacienda, what was happening, and 808 State and everything, and, and, he, and he basically seemed to be telling me there was a, little, a tremendous amount of whistling, people blowing whistles. <laughs> like, you know, exactly and, and, and right. I, I, said, I don't know whether that's going to lure me in, really, the, the whistling. No, <laughs> no, I need more than whistles. But it was very exciting. Actually, yeah. one, the other problem that the Hacienda had, it was a horrible-sounding room. It looked beautiful, but yeah. the acoustics were well, That was its legend, there. really, yes. You know, I mean, yeah. the times I would go there, it's just like, you yeah. know, you can't listen to loud music. Everything was wrong about it. I it? actually <laughs> went to the opening night. Were you on yes. the bus that went up to London? I no, have a memory of you. I was in... You were already in Manchester. I was in Manchester that Yeah, night. I remember yeah. seeing you there. Yes. I mean, I just ended up on this bus that departed from Rough Trade Man. in... July eighty two was it something yeah, like that something yeah, like that. yeah. Mm-hmm. so you were there the 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 Bernard Manning night and everything was Bernard Manning yeah, I, remember, exactly. I, remember, I remember ESG yes, yes. yeah ESG yes. who I had already Manning. fallen in love with well, and uh, yeah. you know good yes yes yeah, yeah no it's great yeah. this week Dusty Springfield's Penny Valentine again Disc Music Echo sixty seven Dusty says I do believe in God though most people I know don't sometimes I think it's a shame that people are so godless. <laughs> <laughs> one thing about Dusty Springfield is that she's always, even though she obviously doesn't like being interviewed and is quite reticent, she's also emotionally honest. She talks Definitely. about, and this is going right back to when she was like a pop straw, mm. 65, 66. She will say what she's, think, what, what she's thinking about things. Which is, Indeed, she didn't play the game, really. No. I mean, but it was, it was interesting how many didn't, and, and at that period when yeah. no one really knew what a pop interview was, you do get these wonderful moments of truth, don't you? You do. You do, yes. PR'd and... In between the favourite colours and the favourite foods. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. yes. I I mean, it's like we got that Maureen O'Grady into... No, it's um, the other rave writer. um, Uh, Dawn James. Dawn James. 
She interviewed Eric Clapton just after he had left the Yardbirds. And she really gets how depressive he is. Mm-hmm. You know, you're reading this, and this is for kids' kind of teens magazine, <laughs> and, and you really get the sense of what a depressive this guy is. Through her interviewing him yeah. and writing it up, it's, it's really good Clarkson, stuff. Clarkson, whose name has almost become like is, persona non grata exactly, on this podcast un- 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 now. Unbelievable. We, we have, we have cancelled Eric Clarkson. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd cancelled him years ago yeah. on musical grounds, uh, well, but he's now cancelled for this fucking uh, uh, insane uh, uh, shit uh, just, he talks about. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving stuff. it, actually. I'm <laughs> loving <laughs> it, yeah. Um, yeah. Lon Goddard interviewing Charlie Watts in 1969. He says, I suppose I could even put a drum solo in a Stones number, but they'd have to ask for it, since I'd probably never suggest it. Um, <laughs> he says, I've never found something I really wanted to do outside the Stones. I know it must sound boring, but it's not. It's a nice interview. You know, I mean, he, he, he didn't get, in, didn't I, get interviewed much. No, I, I remember Chris Blackwell telling me, of Island Records telling me that he was there more or less when the great transformation happened in drummers between the Stones' early one, whose name, forgive me, I've forgotten, but the first drummer who couldn't really drum right. was all over the shop. And... And and Charlie was coming in, and 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 Charlie was obviously suddenly a world class drummer, yeah, a yeah. jazz drummer. And Chris said it was just this wonderful moment of trans- transition <laughs> as yeah. one drummer leads to yeah. the drummer. Yeah. You know, fantastic. Johnny Rotten, uh, Sex Pistols, been interviewed by Barry Kane and Record Mirror in '76. This the interview was recorded before the Grundy episode, but printed after. So it was basically kind of like recorded Grundy. And definitely after the last of Free Trade Hall. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, yes. no, and this says about how that, the tour has just gone, mm. you know, evaporated right. and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and he sort of, I mean, think about Rotten. There's a, at the time you're reading something, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Rotten. And then, then, then you read it now and it's like, it's often really boring and predictable shit he's saying. You know? <laughs> Groups like the Who and the Stones are revolting. They have nothing to offer the kids anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, um, but at yeah, the but time, man, you, know, they, you know, and also, <laughs> you know, I said it to Mick Jagger's face. Mm. You know, I mean, that's how angry we what, were. You're revolting. In, in 1980, <laughs> I said, "You're revolting. Why don't you re- retire?" And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're thinking about it now. It's what about thirty? But I was really angry. You know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and I always remember afterwards, he talked to someone after me, and you know, they used to think, and, and in the piece, it went, "Yeah, I've just had the enemy in here. Seemed very uptight." <laughs> <laughs> I was so proud. Um, <laughs> oh, good for you. <laughs> uh, Don was, uh, and Don and David was, uh, Sam Sutherland, high fidelity in 1984. Sam Sutherland's a writer who just got on board, much to my pleasure, because he's written about a lot of good stuff. Uh, Don says, we looked at people like James White and saw some white guy doing dance music and sticking an Albert Isler. <laughs> Which is, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, for sure. That's very, very yeah, worth mentioning. We, 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 our next guest, yeah. wait, is is none other than Michael Zilker. Oh wow, Michael! Oh my fame. god! Yes. So I think it's Michael Zilker followed by Lenny Kay. Not bad. That's, 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 that's a pretty good. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. Don't move for the next month. <laughs> well, I think that's my lot for the. That's your lot. Just in the interest of time, I'm just going to hand directly over to your good self. I've got just a couple of things to mention. The first of which is a review, Barbara Allen in the Times reviewing Primal Scream's Exterminator. She has to say, suggesting that you might like the new Primal Scream album is a bit like saying you might enjoy having a helicopter explode in your living room. (laughs) The latest offering from Bobby Gillespie in The Scream is not comfortable listening, more a case of extreme psychological indigestion brought on by the complacent state of modern British rock music. Should we not be calling it... As a mutton scrumble. We were trying to come up with names that don't have any vowels in. Mm. And I think the title 
Yeah, it is. Removes right. all that. Well, although, your, although the Times, the published Times, calls did, it exterminate. exterminate. Paul, what's your take on Primal, Primal Scream? Did they sort of mean anything to you at they, all? They, they never really meant anything. I suppose only the Jimmy Miller, wasn't it, that basically did the, the, yeah. the stone sound did, did alike. a lot of, yeah. yeah. So I, I like the Jimmy Miller elements, but they, they, I must admit they've grazed past me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, I mean, now. very much me too. It's partly because I actually kind of buy the lead singer's voice. Well, a bit like... Barney Sumner, he's one of the great non-singers, isn't he, really? Yeah, but he thinks he's a good singer. Oh. Barney Sumner's actually come and knows what he's knows, doing. Knows, he, knows he, he can't he, sing. He, yeah, 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 sure, sure. <laughs> That's probably right. Well, Bobby Gillespie, of course, has an autobiography coming out very soon, so oh. he's all over me. In fact, Barbara Ellen just did another interview with him oh, 21 really? years later. How about that? On Sunday in The Observer. That's so. the, the one thing that has surprised me, is that we are talking in these time spans. Yes. Bobby Gillespie, twenty-one years ago. I know something went wrong. There. It's called it's called it's called growing old. But also that they are still pretty much <laughs> can't be that simple. There and you know not there at the same time. And twenty-one well, years can pass, and we're still sort of talking about them in the same sort of way we were twenty-one years ago. Yeah, it's a sort of I, I, unlike I unlike talking about Mick Jagger for example. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told him he should have resigned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Spot on yeah. There. yeah. <laughs> Next up, not to step on your toes, Mark. I know you like talking about. John Sinclair, but I found his invisible jukebox in the wire. Edwin yeah. Pouncey did did one of those things where they play a bunch of records somewhere. And it's a really lovely interview. I mean, he obviously managed the MC5 and was a White Panther yeah. and all sorts of stuff. But it's great. He definitely wasn't a Black Panther. No, he wasn't. He, talk, he actually talks about setting up the White Panthers in in, the, yeah. in this interview. It's very funny. You know, they they kind of got vetted by the Black Panthers as to why they were doing this kind of thing. <laughs> but Edwin plays him a Robert Northern with Max Roach record that I don't think John Sinclair recognises, but it kind of leads on to being in the style of the MC5's religious advisor, brother J.C. Crawford, and the, he asks what he actually did. And there's this whole story about, like, they came up to them at a gig and were like, do you mind if we come on up on the break and say something about Zenta? We're religious leaders, we have this religion. <laughs> And they said, yeah, whatever, we're happy to accommodate you. And they said all this gobbledygook that really didn't make any sense, but they were convincing, and then they'd pass the hat. When they came down and were counting their money, we realised they were really hustling money for beer and drugs. So naturally, this really endeared them to us, much more than the religious aspect, and we became pals with them. Uh, and then, so they went on and developed it, this whole thing, and they had this plan of, you know, institutionalising it. They bought houses under Zenta, and they were owned by the first Zenta church, and they were trying to claim that marijuana and psychedelic drugs were sacraments, and that that was going to be their well, legal way of taking drugs. You know, it was, <laughs> I just, it's just a great story, great yeah, scheme. Yeah, brilliant. And he also mentions the MC5 playing with Sun Ra at the Grandy Ballroom, yeah. and like just how thrilling that was. And, we love um, John Sinclair. I mean, he's well, actually he one should, of our writers. We, yes. Should, yes. we should get him on the podcast. We really yes. should. We, sh- we should. That's a great idea. You know, idea. he'd be such a good yeah. guest. Yeah. Um, one thing I loved about the whole MC5 scene is that they loved out their jazz. You know, yeah. they yes. really did, and they understood it. You know, mm. so it's them and Sun Ra on the same stage. That makes Did you want to meet John Sinclair? No, no, no. But, but he was he was in a lot of those early American compendiums I don't know, would have, and I was yeah, I, yeah. I, I, Guitar I, Army. You must have bought yeah, Guitar Army, yeah, at some and, point. and just the way he enthused and and, and promoted such a so, such a, yeah, a, he went a to jail nice, for, nice guy. He went to jail for two joints because well, yeah. that was an America in those days, and he was seen as a threat because he's really yeah, political. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. And, and and he's jailed and um, you were arrested j- for how many joints? Sorry, you were arrested over oh, so. a lump of hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should have gone, yeah. gone down for six months. 
<laughs> well, he went down for more than that. I mean, I like, know, it was, it was a, yeah. a, a proper sentence. And yeah. John Lennon and Yoko came over and started oh, that's right. you know, doing all that stuff. It's that yeah. sense of danger that's gone as well. I used to like the danger, you know. The music came out of real danger. Yeah, yeah. In all sorts of ways. He talks about all that in it. It's well worth reading. Yeah, it's just great. I've met him. You've met him, haven't you? He's a sweet guy. He gave a tour of Detroit. Yeah, he's such a such a gentleman. He's super to have him on the podcast. So, John, if you're listening... Yeah, John, <laughs> phone in. <laughs> cool. That's it. That's my lot. That's it. Brilliant. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast, um, except to thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Uh, From Manchester with Love, The Life and Opinions of Tony Wilson is published, I believe, in a week or two? Yeah. A week or so? Yes. By Faber. It, it is absolutely terrific, um, as are all your books. I mean, you, you're very, very prolific. I mean... I mean you published a book on Dylan, uh, the the cover star of yeah, Out I, I, There. Yes, Out There number two. A lot of these things are Out There number and two. And I really like your book. <laughs> 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 I like your Bowie book very much. Thank Reviewed you. Well, I know about very you favourable. You very, very favourable for yeah. somebody. The Observer? Or somebody, but it was, somebody. It was, it was it Barney was somebody, Hoskins, that's really all that mattered to me. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so listen, you know, thanks for joining us. We, we're so pleased to have had you on RBP for so many years and, and great yeah, for you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck hawking this around. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And Mark, we are going to hear one last. It's worth staying for this last yeah, clip. Yeah, actually. It, it, it's great. It's Bernard Sumner talking about his uh, early engagement. Going around essentially to ask Ian to join Joy Division. Or Warsaw. Join, join, join Stiff Warsaw? Kittens or Warsaw, Warsaw or yeah. whatever the hell it was at that point. Um, I, I do believe we have the write up of Warsaw before they became we Joy Division. We do. There's, there's yeah. They're mentioned fleetingly in a live review yeah. uh, along with sort of three or four other bands. So, yeah, this is, some, this is Bernard, Bernard, Bernard. I'm not American. Bernard, <laughs> Bernard yeah. Sumner. It's not Bernard Edwards. Bernard, yeah, Edwards. Yeah. Bernard uh, Fowler. Uh, talking about Ian Curtis. Yeah, yeah. Have a listen. Well, and we'll be back in two weeks, hopefully with Michael Zilker. So this is all of us saying goodbye. Thanks a lot. What would it be like if, uh, if, if Ian was still singing with you? Um, I don't know, because you see, he was uh, physically ill, he had epilepsy really badly. Uh, I don't know whether that I would have got worse or I would have got bad, so physically it would have been imp- impossible, I would think, for him to carry on. Mm. Ian was a spotter, what I like to call a spotter. In life, yeah. Do you know what he was what? A spotter. A spotter? Yeah. He spotted something that was good. The, f- the first day we went round to his house last night to join the band he, uh, he was playing China Girl by Iggy Pop yeah. and I went to his house and I'd never heard Iggy Pop I said what's his record it's fucking great I said oh it's Iggy Pop I said who's Iggy Pop I said oh I said what kind of music do you like anyway do you want to join the group you like the Sex Pistols I said, but what is this record? It's great, and it was great. And he used stuff at that time, like 1977. People just like Sex Pistols and the Clash. 
he was playing again, Kraftwerk, David Bowie, and he just thought my eyes completely. That was Bernard Sumner in conversation with Martin Aston in 1986, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Paul Morley. His book, From Manchester with Love, The Life and Opinions of Tony Wilson, is published by Faber and available now. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. 